there will be markets standing up where small employers have the exact same purchasing power that a Fortune 100 company has. We're actually standing up medical neighborhoods, so a, a version 2.0. Allison sold her company. She's joined me at Quantros, and we're actually doing that very thing. We've got a payment platform that prepays upfront providers. It's actually a, a neighborhood of specialists around primary care, whether it's DPC or a, or a PCMH. So we measure quality and we also measure appropriateness of care. That's what I've done for 30 years. And, um, and so we, we actually are, are curating the specialists based on quality and appropriateness and then, um, and then going in and negotiating cash payments. The thing that I'm really excited about is like these guys now have a seat at the table, right? And they've been just pounded and mm -hmm. for those that are on the fence between being fully insured and self-funded, this could be enough to help them self-fund or level fund. Hello, this is Mike Andrade, and you're listening to the Solving Healthcare podcast. This is the second of a two-part podcast with Shane Walverton. In our last episode, we talked about Quantros and what they do to support the healthcare community. We also discussed how they're using the same data to help individuals and employers to simplify and to narrow the search for quality providers. In this episode, we're going to be talking about what Quantrus is doing to stand up medical neighborhoods in marketplaces around the country. Think of a neighborhood as an evolving collection of providers that are allowed to be in the neighborhood based off their quality performance and appropriateness of care that they deliver. You, as the plan sponsor, have some flexibility as to how many providers you want in the neighborhood. These neighborhoods will be available starting April 1st, 2020. And the great thing is that you may not have to leave your TPA or carrier relationship to take advantage of their model. Listen now and learn about the neighborhood model, what it entails, and how your employees can benefit from this service. So I'm curious from your from your vantage point, or what I see as a challenge with uh, in an ACO model is that you have you have a misaligned incentive, and that let's just say it's it's a, a very large hospital system that may not have the best outcomes for let's just say shoulder surgery or something like that. There's a misaligned incentive and in saying, okay, we don't do the best here, so we're going to send you to one of our comp not our competitors, but somebody that will use a system outside of ours. Do you think that's a, a problem? Or I guess I should say, does that problem really exist or is that made up in my mind? Well, let me say this. I, I wouldn't say that it's a problem. I would say that, that that scenario is set up by the way that healthcare functions today. And that is one of the, one of the challenges of direct contracting, let's say with a provider group. Uh, so a hospital system or an IDN that has either an ACO or a clinically integrated network is that your assessment of their value can no longer be agnostic. It can't be based on criteria that you set that's independent. So when you sign that agreement with them, then they're going to direct you within their, you know, within their ACO structure and they may or may not have information that can validate that that rotator cuff surgery the person doing that rotator cuff surgery mm -hmm. is a physician who 
is highly reliable at avoiding adverse events, that is doing the right surgery at the right time, because they're not set up to they're not set up to do that. So wow. that's why in the in the work that we're doing now, and the work that Cheryl's doing, frankly, mm-hmm. is is saying that so you can you can find highly reliable and, and I use the word high reliability because it's we're actually talking about avoiding adverse events like mortality complications, ED visits, you know, all these things that can be spawned by care. And you can find them within an ACO. The issue is that once you go inside the ACO, if that ACO is directing the care, you can't be fully confident that they're making the decision based on empirical information as compared to the traditional referrals that they tend to make. And I don't fault the ACO for that, but I think that's why the ACOs as a structure, I won't say that they're failing, but the capital that's being used to set them up has been not spent as wisely as it could have been. The other thing that you have that's kind of interesting too is providers can move in and out in terms of reliability. So if you said, if you set a standard and you said, Michael, I'm, my standard is I only want to see physicians that are in the top decile nationally, which means that they're the best 10% at what they do. You also create access issues and right. not all of those providers may be they may not be the most powerful physicians. They may not be the physicians that kind of have a seat at the big table, but they're the physicians that we want in the neighborhood. And so if you curate it outside of an ACO, you can still set up direct contracts. We would do that. You know, right. we, we do, we do that. The, the benefit is that we, the neighborhood will flex depending upon the performance of the providers. And you no longer have to, manage that or think about, wow, you know, how are those guys credentialing? Because like credentialing and peer review is not really what we're talking about. Like quality, even though it's under the purview of those organizations, quality varies so much that that never gets to peer review and frankly shouldn't, only the most egregious things. But as a as a consumer, you want the best all the time. And I don't think ACOs are the best vehicle to do that in in my opinion. Well, yeah, and, I, and what I would say is from my vantage point as as a former sales guy for health insurance company, but also as a consultant, we tend to look at an ERA as the benchmark of success saying, okay, well, how many runs did you score? What was the PEPM, exactly. if you will? Yep. And so we're able right. to say, if you roll it up, you're getting some quality care, but it's probably not the best outcome in every situation. But Correct. You're, you're getting the best average from everybody else in your peer group. Is that a, a fair way to say it? Yes. And the problem is the standard deviation around that mean is so massive. Right. So that you, the answer is yes, you could be getting care that's above average when you roll it up. The problem is the drag of those that are well below where they ought to be exposes you to risk of suffering, longer convalescence, more expense associated with avoiding adverse events that could be avoided had you gone to another provider. So it's, no. it's, it's thinking about the whole rising tide raises all boats theory in healthcare is kind of like, it's not really the way that it works because physicians generate revenue for hospitals and they generate revenue in their practice, mm-hmm. which is their business people. Like 
hospitals love doctors because doctors do things that's and hospitals get paid to provide them the things to do the things that they do what we're saying is not that hospitals are not trustworthy it's that they're so massive that the variation is unmanageable that you actually have to create the opportunity for arbitrage yourself and frankly that can only be done you can sign a contract with an aco but outside of that you can refer to only those optimal providers within that ACO. That's a better strategy than saying, by contracting with the ACO, I'm actually getting better quality. You're actually not. Mm-hmm. Any more than contracting with Cigna is going to give you only the highest quality physicians in Houston. That's not what they do. They sign agreements for the widest network availability that they can possibly get. They do not look at quality at all. Right, right. I imagine if you asked Cigna, they might, they might disagree with you. But that being said, I mean, obviously, you have data and analytics on your side to at least show where you can direct traffic. Is, is that a correct statement? Yes. And by the way, back to Cigna, from my vantage point, I actually don't hold them responsible for right. no, the I quality agree. of the providers. I like that's not their job. You know, that's the job of physicians to govern themselves. And, and I think that's kind of the problem, like quality is this amorphous concept that we think we understand. But in healthcare, there are so many perversities that, you know, for example, like, well, high volume always leads to high quality. It doesn't. It doesn't correlate with quality at all. Some advisors like to say that high quality always costs less. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I know that's not true. You can get the most amazing quality in the world at Cleveland Clinic. You will also pay a premium when you go to Cleveland Clinic. So it's kind of these generalizations that I think are potentially problematic. So the reality is that quality and price are independent, that it's ubiquitous within healthcare. It cannot be controlled by a provider or a carrier or a TPA that's writing the range of business that they have to write in order to sustain a, a network. That's just, you, you have to accept it. That's just kind of one of the realities. So I guess in, from your vantage point, how would you recommend or how, how would you suggest a, a client that's strategic around quality, how they should set something up to, because you're talking about bandwidth. It's a bandwidth challenge, but how are solutions organized to effectively allow for the ebb and flow of capacity, but still directed towards quality? So are you talking about optimization or are you talking about from an employer's perspective, how do I balance, how do I balance those? Everybody wants to go to the best doctor for whatever, whatever the, whatever the ailment might be, but there's right now there's, when you go to a a major provider, to my knowledge, right. there's not going to be a qualitative right. indicator like you saying, hey, go here, not there. Correct. And, and to your point, if what we did was we migrated all the people that wanted high quality to just 10% of the providers that were, mm-hmm. let's say, providing that highest quality, then you would actually introduce a significant access problem. Mm-hmm. So, so part of it is... So there are a couple things that you can think about in answering that question. The first thing is, if you were able to eliminate encounters or procedures that were unnecessary, and unnecessary from the standpoint that by having that procedure that you receive no clinical benefit. So you're you're taking you're increasing capacity in those providers that are top decile if we're eliminating procedures that are not clinically beneficial. 
Mm-hmm. That's one strategy. The other thing is, is there enough availability? So if we look at Houston, for example, are there enough providers that are performing in a reliable fashion to where the volume that I have can be rotated through that group to where I don't have access problems? And I think the answer to that is yes, if you're thoughtful about it. So if you think about queuing or staging or making sure that you're rotating these encounters through this group of providers, it's possible to do hmm. that. And now you, you have to be more sophisticated about that, frankly, than we are today, which is I've got a doctor that calls to get a referral and then I'm waiting, you know, two months to get in to see that physician. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like ordering a pizza now, right? Um, yes, exactly. So there's unfettered access to the, to the specialists based on the, um, uh, you know, based on traditional routes of interacting with the providers. And also some of that is driven by the, the hospital, the, the health systems themselves. In other words, they want to drive revenue downstream into their ACOs or not, not ACOs, but into their clinically integrated networks or mm-hmm. into their system so that they can keep more of the revenue. The other opportunity that you have is if you think about primary care, practicing more at the top of its license, I would suggest that primary care has more capacity to manage chronic disease states and other conditions that if they were not exacerbated, you would not have as much demand on the, on the health system as we have today. Hmm. So, and that clearly is an opportunity to where primary care has been used as kind of a funnel in some ways. And, and the demands on primary care are pretty extensive in terms of their productivity. So you've got eight minutes with a patient, which again, is not nearly enough to be able to diagnose and understand the fullness of that patient's needs. And if we thought about primary care differently and the value that it can bring, it, it actually can have a significant impact on the reduction of demand for specialty care. If you also take away the incentive to do unnecessary surgeries or, or to, to provide unnecessary care, I think kind of those three things open up an opportunity to increase capacity where you need it and would want it. Mm-hmm. You could also widen the aperture up if you wanted to, to say, you know what, we may take the top 25% of all providers, because statistically what we're saying is that in our view of the world with respect to quality, when I tell you that somebody falls at the 75th percentile or above, that also correlates with the level of statistical significance that I can say that they're different from the mean performance. So what we're saying is that we're 75% confident that if I go to one of these providers, I'm going to avoid adverse events. So you could also kind of open the aperture up to the number of providers that you would include as high performing without getting to the point where you're actually including providers that maybe their performance is random variation or is not variation that's meaningful relative to an average performance. Hmm. Does Does that make sense? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. It's just what it means to me is that as the healthcare system evolves or as we, as we, I don't know if evolve is the right word, but essentially we're pushing it into another dimension where it's no longer about, Hey, let's, let's look at 
Cygnus network or Blue Cross's network. It's a lot more thoughtful than that and a lot more strategic than that to say, okay, we want, our, we want to steer our folks in, in a particular direction with quality being a driver of that, understanding that to go to a quality provider, it may cost more. But in the long right. run, it may, it may reduce complications. But you're going to have to be thoughtful around, okay, where do we, where do we set the thermostat so that we're not uh, yes. creating a yes. capacity issue? But then also, yep. how do we take it away from a, a, essentially a, a model where you're ordering a pizza to where we can essentially right. round out and distribute the capacity so that all boats are rising with the tide? I think that's what I'm hearing yeah. you say. I think uh, the word the word that comes to mind is optimization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when I, I think about optimization, what we're simply saying is that the healthcare ecosystem right now provides unfettered access to various stakeholders based on criteria that may be ambiguous and offer widely variant value. If you go back to Michael Porter and the way that he defined value, which I which I like, I like his definition, and that is value is defined as health outcomes achieved per dollar spent. It's an economist perspective on, I have a dollar I'm spending in healthcare. I need to to measure that relative to a health outcome. Today, we do not do that because price variation is opaque to most of the participants in healthcare and quality variation is opaque. And so if you have no visibility into those two things, it's not possible for you to assess healthcare value. Hmm. So I would, I would argue that actually ordering a pizza is far easier <laughs> for, for assessing value than whether I got what I should have received when I had an encounter with my provider for my clinical condition. Wow. So what I'm saying is if you can, if you can objectify price, so price can be known, and and quality can be known, then value can be achieved. And part of that is not just the price per unit, whether it was appropriate or not. So are we are we achieving an optimal outcome, but also access, convenience, you know, amenity, there are other things, patient reported outcomes, things that go beyond just like did I have a complication, but like did I receive my range of movement that I needed? Am I able to ambulate? You know, has my quality of life been restored? More, more kind of complicated and I think more probably in some ways more meaningful assessment of healthcare value. Hmm. As, we, as I was preparing for this conversation, it was really more around what I expected you to say was more around where the data company that does, that we feed a lot of engines, whether it's the hospital yes. side, the physician side, TPAs, we provide the, we provide the, the back office support so that the clinicians can help direct traffic and all of that. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that in terms of a neighborhood and by neighborhood, you're, you're meaning a collection of specialists that meet quality standards that are all in when it comes to the philosophical and reimbursement standards you're talking about. Correct? Yes. And I, yes. And I would also include that includes hospitals that includes primary okay. care so the neighborhood, so yes, we're curating specialists, but what I, I don't know what your experience has been, but we talk a lot about primary care and then we just kind of like say, okay, we're just using them to kind of get to the specialists. Like, mm-hmm. So what we want is primary care to be front and prominent, to practice at the top of their license, 
which means that there's care that they could be delivering that right now goes to specialists that we want to stay in primary care. And then we want, and then we're going to provide innovative payment models that are attractive to primary care that reward them for not just referrals into the neighborhood, but also managing chronic disease states that need to be and ought to be managed in primary care. So it's a holistic approach to healthcare that treads lightly on everybody rather than be, being brash or being blunt or being, you know, overbearing. We don't, we don't think it's necessary. We think it's actually probably confusing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the way that, the way that apostrophe does it is a wonderful way too. Like we are, so we are an engine that feed other organizations. We're also going to do some of the work ourselves because we think there's an opportunity to take more of this and serve it to the consumer and help them meet their needs and help the plan sponsor meet their needs. What I'm, what I'm hearing you say is, is you're, you're changing the rules of the game. And so you're, you're saying, yes. hey, look, we're, we're going to have a cooperative standard. And rather than focusing on a fee-for-service event, we're going to focus on, obviously, everyone's going to get paid, right? And, and we're going to yep. be fair in terms of the division of labor. But at the end of the day, quality is going to have a huge part in who is in the neighborhood and who's not. Yes, it is the primary differentiator. So yeah. quality and appropriateness, those two things are the primary differentiator. If you don't meet those two standards, you will not be part of the neighborhood. And that's not punitive. We can actually show you what would need to improve in order to participate. Yeah. But the primary thing is if you do not deliver appropriate, high quality care, that's not who we want in the neighborhood. And we want the consumer experience in the neighborhood to be exemplary. Now, the reality is, guess what? Readmissions happen, complications mm-hmm. of care happen, you know, things happen. But we know that that if we've sent you to providers that do a great job of avoiding these things, when they do happen, it's okay. Right now, what's happening is they're being spawned by our encounters with providers, and then we're being told, well, unfortunately, you were just, you know, in the 5% that has a complication of care or the 10% that has a readmission when that's not really the truth. The truth is you went to a provider that spawned it more often, not you were unlucky and just happened to be on the wrong side. Yeah. So answer this for me because I'm thinking back to my days at uh, either uh, Prudential United Healthcare or Blue Cross Mm -hmm. when you had a, a qualitative based model that had a quality component to it where maybe there's some type of withhold or something like that. The provider argument for why they didn't make it is that they had a poor demographic pool, right? So correct. uh, Yeah. Adverse patient selection. Yeah. Yeah. And so Uh in, in this model that you're talking about the neighborhood, uh, I'm Mm -hmm. assuming that that's, that's worked out and worked through to avoid that. So the risk adjustment, yeah, the risk adjustment, the risk adjustment of quality negates the argument that I treated patients that were a higher risk for an adverse event. Do the doctors agree to that before they become part of the neighborhood? The answer is yes. So we have, the, in, we have there's a neighborhood that's currently up in Orlando. They're actually SLAs based on percentiles of performance mm-hmm. between the plan sponsor and the providers. So as you can imagine, the docs that are in the top decile and by the way, they're in the top decile, not just because they have the lowest, let's say, risk-adjusted index, 
This also considers volume. We're mm -hmm. talking about statistical significance. So those docs know why they were chosen and by what criteria they were chosen. And therefore, they also know that if they continue, that they're going to continue to be included. But then one of the reasons that we, when we think about the neighborhood, what we're not doing is publishing a roster or a list is we also recognize that there's fluctuations in performance. And so some providers may move in and out of the neighborhood based on performance, access, availability, so on and so on. Mm -hmm. So think of it as more of an organic thing than rather we've got a roster, we're going to publish the roster, people are going to look at the roster. What we find is people don't look at rosters. They don't look at, you know, they don't look at, you know, they look at is the doc in or out of network, but you know what? We can do all that. Just call. Like I can tell you, yeah, they're in network and yes, you have benefits and here's copays and deductibles. So you're eligible. Now, when we make the referral, now what we know is A, they're a top decile doc. B, they're also using appropriate modalities. So first, second, third lines of treatment. And then C, they are willing to participate in value-based delivery. Is the queuing itself, is that a is that a technology solution that allows people that allows providers to say, okay, I'm gonna submit throw somebody in the queue or not, or is so we'll we'll do the queuing and we'll do that. So that'll be part of our workflow. That, that is part of our workflow technology. So like we're not we're not sending everybody to the same doc because we know like yeah, you're yeah. So you're, yeah, you're, so yeah, you're building like well, a calendaring system that says exactly. based on the thousand doctors that are in the network, let's see which ones have available next week. Yes. And, and, and also which ones have we referred to most recently? So we need to refer to these, these guys over here provided they're oh, okay. in a so, reasonable service area. Oh. So, so we can actually manage the queuing from two perspectives. I don't know that we'll be doing direct scheduling the reason for that is some of the some of the docs get a little hinky about that, but okay. we will be doing the we will be managing that those interactions of of scheduling. So whether it's technology solution or whether it's you know we're actually dialing and finding them, but but again these will be specialists that know they're in the neighborhood. So once we identify this patient as a neighborhood patient, we'll also be facilitating all the upfront stuff to mm -hmm. for the payment too. So all that gets coordinated mm -hmm. as well. Okay. It's a very positive thing. And in the primary care side, the same thing. Primary care is at the center of this. So if you have a DPC model, it's a one. So if you have a preeminent primary care group or if you have direct primary care that's either shared on site or near site, when you, when you lay this concept in, what happens is you supercharge it because now your DPC providers can can call the concierge or understand where the referrals need to be made. So now it's seamless. Mm -hmm. So it's it's easy for the consumer to feel good about the process rather than being tossed out or simply said, we're going to make this referral and you don't know who this physician is, but you're trusting that this provider is going to do a good job on your on your clinical problem when we when they really don't know that. Yeah. So talk to me about that. And, and so for, for the audience, DPC is direct primary care. Not everybody, correct. Not everybody has heard of that, but essentially that's going to be a clinical model where it's more of a capitated arrangement. And I guess my question around primary care is we had talked earlier about giving doctors more than eight minutes. So actually having them practice yeah. medicine. 
does that mean like all of the little, like the little sniffle stuff? I mean, the thing that's not, that's not necessarily, you don't necessarily need to see a primary care doctor for, but a lot of times they'll still right. do it just for whatever reason. So in this model, right. is that partitioned away to a lower, a lower level of care or walk through how that would work? Sure. So it, the answer is it can be. So if you look at groups like, um, so you have premise, crossover, you have we care, which can be shared. You also have direct-to-consumer models like One Medical, MDVIP. Mm-hmm. You have Iora that works with plan sponsors or employers. And so the opportunity to triage patients into, let's say, ranges of their clinical need when I say practicing at the top of the license, what that means is if I have contact dermatitis and I need a steroid shot and, you know, something that doesn't need to be, I don't need to be seen by a physician uh, necessarily. So telemedicine can work mm-hmm. as well. And, and then also recognizing that in a direct primary care model, if you lower the number of patients on the panel by the provider, then you expand the ability of that provider to spend time and understand from a comprehensive uh, perspective the needs of that patient and then be more attentive to the the broader needs of the patient rather than seeing them for what is the acute illness at this particular point in time for the encounter and not digging underneath to understand, you know, are there, let's say, are there issues with anxiety, you know, Mm self-medication, chronic things that not looked at become exacerbated and then become more problematic where you actually need a specialist. And so the virtues of direct primary care is it provides, and and as you mentioned, the way it's funded or can be funded is it's a PEPM, so it's capitated. They don't file any claims, so they're paid on a monthly basis, and they get back to what it is that they want to do, which is delivering care to patients, but then they're also incented to take care of the chronic conditions under a capitated model. If you go back to the 90s, when we were looking at HMOs and the, and the primary care docs were the gatekeepers, you actually set up an adversarial relationship with the specialists because you couldn't get care that you may have needed or may have perceived have been needed because primary care was not allowing that to progress. In this model, you're simply segmenting primary care and saying, I'm going to pay for primary care differently. And then when they refer out to the specialists, we're presuming that because they have a wider aperture on the patient and they're taking care of their conditions, that they're going to refer to a specialist only when it's needed. So they have both the time and the ability to take care of the patients in a more broad sense. The use of quality then in the context of direct primary care is a very powerful tool because it allows them to connect the patient to those specialists that are going to more than likely lead to a positive outcome or at least avoid outcomes that are avoidable. And if an outcome like a readmission rate is unavoidable, you've sent them to the best providers to avoid them. And if they can't, then obviously you were going to have a readmission because you had a very complicated problem. And that medical home, whether it's capitated or not, can move down that continuum or that glide path towards value-based care to where it could be partially capitated. They could participate in the in incentives and other things that would not put them in violation of Stark or self-referral laws. Um, and there are any number of models that work. But, but the point is, medical home is very important 
and we want them to be paid to do more care because that can be less expensive. I work with a gentleman by the name of Scott Connard. I've known Scott for many, many years, and um, he's not only passionate about primary care, but he's actually got a vision of how primary care sits in the healthcare ecosystem. And so this is a way to actually empower primary care to be more active, to be more comprehensive than it's been, and then also to connect it in a more virtuous way to the specialists in the area. By curating a smaller neighborhood, we also are doing something else that's interesting, and that is we're making the decisions easier on the part of the, the physicians and the consumers. So instead of having to look through a hundred different, you know, physicians, there's five, you know, 50 different guys, there's three. And um, it helps in the decision-making because, I mean, I know personally, you know, give me three to five and that's pretty much more than I can oh, you know, yeah. handle in terms of making a decision. Um, so in that, in that regard, when it comes to primary care, referring to a specialist, going back to ordering a pizza, it sounds like <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're always going back to food here. What is that? It is close to the end of the day. So, yes. but, but my, I guess my premise would be if there's only three to five specialists in fill in the blank specialty, then it becomes a question of, it doesn't have to be Dr. Smith, Dr. Jones, or Dr. Brown. Let's figure out which one can fit this person in on the scheduling that meets the patient's needs and immediacy of care. Is, is that fair to presume that? Yeah. So think about like queuing. So mm -hmm. think about queuing, which is, so in the, the number is going to be relative to a certain number of patients. So, or, or a certain number of folks that are enrolled in the neighborhood. So in a large metropolitan area like Houston, you, you could end up with a thousand or 1500 physicians to meet the access needs. So the point is, that access will not be a problem at this point in finding higher value care. So much like ordering a pizza, so time varies, like I'll order pizza occasionally. And some, so on Super Bowl night, it's what, an hour and a half to get your pizza. On Wednesday evening at 5.30, you can get it in 25 minutes. So the, one of the other challenges we have too is when, when care is needed, people can't get access to it. So uh, as you well know, you know, sometimes referrals are two, three, four months out. Right. Now we've created a system where the referrals are actually attractive to the doctors and, and we're, we're bringing them more proximate to when the referral was made because we're paying, you know, upfront. And, and so now what we're doing is eliminating friction in the system based on the current, you know, modalities of, referrals and, and patients. So there is no doubt that if we were to, let's say we were to scale this at some point, the question becomes, can you reach the limits of accessibility of high quality providers? That's a mathematical exercise. And the answer is yes, at some point in time, you will create access problems. Are mm -hmm. we close to that? No, we're not close to that at all. Um, we've got so much opportunity. Yeah, that was one of my questions is, is uh, we're talking about, if you look at, at just at the news and they talk about a potential doctor shortage and a nursing shortage, how do you address that capacity? What, what I'm hearing you say is, hey, look, let's let primary care practice to the peak of primary care. We do that, there'll be more time for specialists and they'll actually want 
the referral based on the quality and clinical guidelines that you used to set up the neighborhood. Did I get yep. that right? Or think, yes, absolutely. Or think of it in this way. If let's, let's say, let's just, let's just pick a number. Let's say that 20% of specialty care that's delivered offers no clinical benefit mm-hmm. or let's say an ambiguous clinical benefit. So we don't know whether it benefits or not. So let's take that out. So we've just now created capacity for 20% of the specialist's time. So let's then, let's say in primary care, if we can create a model where they have the time and attention to take a more comprehensive view of care of that patient and more of that can occur in primary care, let's say you eliminate another 10 to 15% of specialty visits. So we've freed up 35% Theoretically, you know, the numbers, I would suggest you're probably more prolific. So that specialist is now going to be able to move referrals forward because they need to generate revenue too, right? Mm-hmm. So this is, this is about a system of healthcare based on production, not based on value. Yep. And, and so now what we've done is squeezed capacity and waste out of a system that delivers no clinical benefit and is taking money off of balance sheets, EBITDA, people's, you know, consumable income, and, and we've kept it there, and then it can be redeployed in different ways. Now, like, that sounds all, like, kind of fantastical, like, we're doing that, like, now. Cheryl is doing that in her own way right now. Mm-hmm. So, it's, it's, not, it's not a challenge. It's not even theoretical. In, in 18 months, there will be markets standing up where small employers have the exact same purchasing power that a Fortune 100 company has. That is what gets me the most excited. Yep, is yep. somebody that's got 300 lives can access the same deal that somebody that's got 200,000 lives accesses. That is market power. And in the same time, you're not disenfranchising anybody that's not delivering value into the healthcare system. To a 300 life employer group, I want to put them in the village. Um, does that exist yet? I can, I can actually give you a list of the markets that we're standing up and the sequence of them. So, you know, this 300 life group, depending on where they are, let's say they're in Atlanta starting April one, mm-hmm. like they're all, they're they, all in Houston. Like, yeah. So if they're all in Houston, they'll be up April one. Okay, cool. And so you could load a hundred 300 life groups or hundred life groups into the neighborhood and it all works and they get the same deal as everybody else. And, and the thing that's, the thing that I'm really excited about is like these guys now have a seat at the table, right? And they've been just pounded. And Mm -hmm. for those that are on Mm -hmm. the fence between being fully insured and self-funded, this could be enough to help them self-fund or level fund potentially. And then we're actually going to, we're actually starting to make runs at reinsurance companies okay, so that we can begin to impact the premiums on that side too, which could also help more organizations go, you know, self-funded. What's the minimum Absolutely. size that you're, you're targeting as a group that would fit within the neighborhood? There's no, there's no minimum. Like once we build it, Anybody, any group that you want to enroll in this, it doesn't make any difference to us. These neighborhoods 
can sit within any ASO, so it doesn't make any difference. You don't have to choose your ASO. Okay. So it's 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 completely agnostic, which means if it's a small TPA, that's great. If it's like, you know, Maritain, it's great. If it's, you know, Aetna, great, Cigna, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's it's irrelevant. Okay, so you're building the neighborhood on your own, but you're not working with a yes. broker or a consultant or I'll, I'll tell you, 100 Life Group yesterday, 300 Life Group, they they want this stuff. They are tired yeah. of healthcare costs yeah. just being an, a portion of their budget that they just don't understand and are tired of yep. giving away money for no reason other than because the carrier says, I said so. And so yep. you have really thoughtful careful CEOs, careful CFOs that want to do the right thing and provide value to their employees and families, but are just hamstrung because there's only three options or four, four viable options. And they all, they all suck from a pricing perspective. And yep, an ability, I totally get it. Yeah. Shane, thank you so much for your time today and for what your company is doing to shape and transform healthcare. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to speak with you. This was really a pleasant surprise. I appreciate somebody willing to ask provocative questions and really think about healthcare in a different way. And so it's a pleasure to be on the phone with you and spend some time and kind of chip away at some of these things, which I know are confounding to many people. And yeah, so I'm the, just happy to be helpful. The cool thing about doing this podcast is it puts me in front of really, really smart people. And so listening to what you're doing and how you how you guys are thoughtfully crafting solutions to obviously uh, you have your own profit incentive but really the end game and what keeps you going every day is to help is to help people and improve outcomes so that that's very obvious thank you for listening to this episode of solving healthcare if you like this episode please rate it and also provide your comments If you would like to know how this service or others could fit within your organization, or if you'd like to sign up for future podcasts and news updates, please go to www.solvinghealthcare.net and click on contact.